morning, everybody. In James 5.15, it says, The fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that's out of the King James Version. And I don't normally read the King James Version, but no other version says it quite like that, where it has that really strong emphasis. Um, the fervent and effectual prayer of the righteous man availeth much. In that we should approach these difficult things in our life with prayer. And I was considering when we pray and when we don't pray and how we example that. And even within our service, um, it can become feeling very liturgical. We just, uh, we pray when we transition, we pray when we open, we pray over the person coming up, and that's when we pray. And it loses some of the emphasis if we only look at it that way. It loses some of the power that prayer is meant to be. The amazing, wonderful thing that God has given you, the ability to speak to the Lord Almighty is what we have. The fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I think if we look at our lives very often, when things start to get rocky and difficult or you're approaching a really stressful thing, we're right there to pray. Lord, just please make this go smoothly. And we're there. But what happens in the rest of our lives? When things are just okay or when things are really good, are we still right there with the Lord? Lord, let this go smoothly. Consider the life you want. Do you want just life? Or do you want the abundant life that the Lord promises? The abundant life comes with walking with the Lord day by day, not just walking with the Lord when things get hard. So again, the fervent and effectual prayer of the righteous man availeth much. How in our lives are we seeking God? How, how and when are we turning him, to Him? What are we turning to Him for? Because there's another part in James where it says, hey, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you don't have because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so we got to make sure that we're in alignment with the Lord. Steve used to say when he was here, you want to be in the slipstream of God's grace. It's being right on track with where the God is headed, that you view the world the same way he views the world. When you view, you view your life the way he views your life. And that when you seek things, you're seeking after things you know God wants, so you're right there in alignment with him, and it availeth much. Prayer is one of the most powerful things we have in our lives. How are we tapping into that day by day, speaking to the Lord. And I was considering this as we look at our, we look at our passage today. We're looking at this family of Jacob. We're looking at people crying out to the Lord and whether or not they're crying out in a way that lines up with God's plan or is it simply lining up with their personal desires. Thematically, over the last few weeks, we've run into a few different things that kind of really should be a mirror to our lives. One of the main things was, do the ends justify the means? Wickedness is never justified. It doesn't matter what it's for. The ends will never justify wickedness. We've talked about the law of reaping and sowing. What you put out into the world, you're going to get that right back. We've talked about walking with God and what that looks like. I asked a big question a bunch of times last week. Who are we? When we say we find our identity in Christ, what does that mean? When you walk through your life and you have these interactions, the things that just rub you the wrong way, split things, second things happen in your brain. Before you even have the chance to think, you respond. Every single one of us, nobody can escape that. Who you are kicks in before you can even start thinking about who you are. What do you want to happen at that point? Do you want to be a reflection of Christ or do you want to have to apologize and say, I'm supposed to be reflecting Christ? What is the life you wish to have? Because it's so easy to look at scripture. It's so easy to look at these accounts and judge it and go, wow, these were terrible people. Look at all the terrible things they did to each other. 
But what often happens in Scripture, we are not given just the terrible people. We're given the standard. We're given, this is what people are like. Every now and then, we get someone who's great, someone who's amazing. But it's juxtaposed against the common person. You get people like Samson. He's in the book of Judges. He was one of the earlier on Judges, and I just scratch my head every time I read that story. Really? Samson? Go back and read Samson. It's just, it's absurd. It's like, this is the guy you chose out of anybody. You can get anybody, Lord. But often he's not choosing Samson because he's the best. He's choosing Samson to show what he can do with that. We've, the title of this is The Lord Despite Us. Yeah. See what God does despite us. Every now and then we get an example of the exception. You get a Samuel whose life was utterly for God. There is not an ill word spoken of Samuel throughout the entirety of Scripture. It was amazing. Everybody wants to be a Samuel. Most of us are not Samuels. It's just the way it is. Most of us are Samsons. You have to own it. You got to wear it. You got to realize the Bible is not meant for you to judge. The Bible is meant for you to reflect and go, hmm, how would I actually behave any differently put in the same context? Because that's the biggest thing. Most of us look at these things. We don't live in their context. We don't live in the difficulty of their lives. Most of us haven't experienced them. Some of us have. Some of us have gone through really difficult things. And I don't want to speak to that. I don't want to speak to anyone's particular journey and the difficulties they've walked through. But a lot of things, we, we're given a lot of different accounts throughout Scripture that a lot of us haven't actually walked that road to know, I would never do that. The important thing is to reflect upon it and say, how has God called me to react in that? How am I going to bleed Jesus when I'm cut by this world? How are we going to respond? How will we make this who we are? And it's going to take us reflecting upon it, looking at it, speaking it to one another, encouraging one another, and admonishing one another to be able to speak the truth in love. And when we tell people, hey, you did this, and that's not who we are. We're honest. You don't berate. You don't tear someone down. You just say it straight. You can't be nice about it either. You did this. That wasn't good. That's not who we are. Good. Leave it there. There's an, there's an appropriate amount of shame that everyone should feel when they don't do something, when they, or when they do something that's wrong. You don't rail on them for it, but you make them understand, hey, this was not right. And you let them walk that in internally with the Lord. As iron sharpens iron, so does one brother sharpen another. It's part of our call. It's hard. It's difficult. Scripture is meant to help us walk this out. So we're going to look at today. We're going to look at some people that they got their own motivations. And the Lord is going to work despite them. How do we use this as a mirror to reflect upon ourselves in our lives? Genesis 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. <laughs> Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Billah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave, her, gave him her servant Billah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. 
Rachel's servant Bila conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Bilpah, Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. It's a good place to stop. Uh, if this feels like a dysfunctional family, you would be right. <laughs> Contextually, there's a lot of things already stacked against them. Just the day and era they were in, women were very severely judged by their ability to bear sons and lots of sons, strapping boys to work the fields to expand the family. That's what they would have been judged for. And if you had nothing but daughters, even though you had a lot of children, they would have looked at that shamefully because you didn't produce sons. There's this huge emphasis on this. It would describe what kind of woman you were by this. And what's so peculiar to me is go through scripture and tell me where it says women are better if they bear sons. That's not, from the, that's not from the word of the Lord. That's something we put on women, and it's not a healthy thing to do. We do that now so very often. It's just different where there are intrinsic things out in our culture. We say, women, you're supposed to be this way, and if you're not, you're less. And then you have the struggle that goes on here, this rivalry, these things where Leah, Leah bore six sons. She did everything the world said you must do to be a successful wife, and your husband will love you, it'll be great, and... Did that happen? No, it didn't. How many people have experienced something like that now? Where the world said, if you just do it, if you just be this way, if you just look like this, and you just like the, act like this, then everyone will love you, and there'll never be any issues. And does that always happen? No, because we live in the world. And the world just says, more, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. It will never, ever be enough, ever. If we're going by what the world says and not by what the Word of God says for us to do. If we're allowing the world to define who we are and not God to define who we are. They were set to fail from the beginning. Scripture itself says, don't marry sisters. It's such a terrible idea. Don't set them up as rivals against one another. Sisters are meant to be for each other. They're meant to be a, sense, a system of support for each other, to love each other, to encourage one another. And is that happening? No. No, it's such a terrible setup from the very beginning. 
And all of this is revolving around an immense lack of love within the household. In this way, Jacob is not being a good husband. He is loving one and not the other. He has found himself in the situation in life that he didn't want to be in. And we will find ourselves in situations in life that we don't want to be in. But you're in it now. There's a way God has called us to despite the situation, even if you didn't choose it. God says, this is who you are. Despite all of that, we must choose. It's not justified for Jacob to unlove Leah because he didn't want to marry her. He is married to her. You don't get to escape the reality just because you don't like it. God still calls us to a certain way of living, to a certain standard, to a way that we treat one another, to how these relationships go. And we have this competition going on where they're fighting with each other for who can have the most kids because that's what, they, that's what everyone says is going to be the most. They're fighting to be the absolute best wife. The world's standards of the best wife is going to have the most kids. And when they can't have kids, I'll bring another woman into this situation because that makes things better. Let's just bring another person into this marriage and they'll have kids for me. And then the other wife, oh, I stopped having kids. We'll add another woman into this. What could possibly go wrong? This has never gone wrong before, right? Oh, wait, Grandpa Abraham... So despite all of this, despite us, God is moving through all of this. God's purposes are still at work here. Because his reason for expanding this family isn't so that the women can win out over each other. His reason for expanding this family is to establish Israel, establish this people into a great nation. And it has to begin with a lot of kids. It could have gone in a much healthier way. But God works with who he has here. God works with the Samsons. God works with the Rachel and the Leahs and the Jacobs. God works with us. And this is what he's doing. From these four women, we have the tribes of Israel. From Leah, you have Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and their sister Dinah. From Billah, you have Dan and Naphtali. From Zilpah, you have Gad and Asher. From Rachel, you have Joseph. And later on, will be, mar- will be born is Benjamin. He's not born yet in our account. But these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's interesting, just as a quick note, you don't normally see the tribe of Joseph. You don't normally read about the tribe of Joseph in Scripture. You'll read about it a little bit, but that's because Joseph received the birthright. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the birthright and the blessing. Now, every child gets a birthright and every child gets a blessing, but when you talk about the birthright and the blessing, you're talking about who gets the double portion and who will be preeminent, who will be in charge after dad passes away. Joseph's the 11th son, and he gets both of these things. You might ask, well, what about Reuben? Reuben does naughty things. You can read about Reuben in a couple chapters. Your Bible is open to you. Um, But he does things he shouldn't have done, and that does not go to him. It goes to Joseph. Joseph ends up, through his listening to the Lord and responding to the Lord and working with God, ends up saving the entire world from starvation. He becomes the pride of this family. He gets not only the birthright, he also gets the blessing. The birthright, the double portion he gets, is in his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh you will hear very often because they become those two tribes of Joseph. They are the double portion. Manasseh is enormous as a tribe. They're extremely blessed. They take up probably a third of the nation when you look at the old maps. I didn't really look at that closely before. You have little itty bitty Simeon and you got like Manasseh. 
that's on there. Anyways, that part's free, just so you know. Some other interesting things going on here, this, this talk about the mandrakes in the middle. What is this worth mentioning for? What was going on here? Mandrakes are a folk remedy. So we're going to put up what the plant looks like. It's that little purple flower, but the big thing about it is the root. And the root will often look like the lower part of a person's torso. And it is thought, if you grind up the root and you powder it and you put it into food or drink, that it will give potency or it will give fertility. And you have women that are competing for the most kids. So this is a valuable commodity at this point. They're willing to barter and trade for it. Does it work? There's no proof of that. It's a folk remedy. It's the kind of thing that people turn to when they're desperate. We actually still have those things now. <laughs> things like if, um, for women who are nine months pregnant and the due date has come and gone and it's been a week and baby, get out. They're at this stage. Not as many people left. Um, <laughs> you're ready for the baby to be born. Well, Schipolini's Pizza has a folk remedy. Down in Folsom, they ha it's called Prego Pizza. And people swear by it that that will send you right into labor and that baby will come on out. And it's one of the things where it worked for some, it hasn't worked for others. It's a folk remedy. It's the power of persuasion. There's nothing scientific behind it. It works for some, not for others. But they're desperate. It's showing that these people, they're so desperate, they're willing to turn to these other things. It gets us off track. It gets us chasing after myths. You'll see that in the New Testament a lot of times. Do not get caught up and chase after myths. Stick to the truth that is before you. Amen. And then within all this, I thought it was really peculiar, Jacob's compliance. Because time and time again, it was hey, I sold you for mandrakes. Okay. Hey, I've stopped, I haven't had any kids yet. I really need kids. You're going to take my servant. Okay. I have four children, but I need more. Take my servant. Okay. What? What are you doing, sir? And I think there's several people in here who's like, well, he's a man. <laughs> and I say, I'm going to speak on behalf of the married men in this room. I say, nay, nay. Most married men just want to be with their one wife. <laughs> Should have been more clapping for that, man. <laughs> Stick up for yourselves. Now, that being the case, that's one side. He could just be a greedy man. There are men like that. That could be the case. There's also the case of this is a guy who works really, really hard. We'll read this in the rest of scripture. He goes out to the field in the scorching heat, in the unbearable cold. He works really hard at what he's doing day by day. And then he comes back, and we know we have a bickering contest, a rivalry at home. It's not like he comes home and everyone's quiet and goes, everything's wonderful. These are not wasps. No, this is a different people group. They let you know when they're not happy. And to come home to that day after day after day after day, and it doesn't matter which tent you go to, because they all have separate tents, you're going to hear about this. And so I, I'm wondering at this point, is he just so worn down? He's just, whatever makes you happy, dear. Sure, whatever makes you happy. And it's not a good spot to be in. It's not a good spot to be in in your marriage. Complacency and compliance. No, when you're at this such a difficult spot, when you're working through these things, you have to stand up, both husband and wife, and even when you're tired, and even when you're worn down, and it's been years, you have to work out the issues. You have to go with each other in fear and trembling before the Lord and say, we have to sort this out. Amen. Otherwise, it's going to just be the same. It's going to be the same old thing. Compliance doesn't fix things. 
And the last thing with this section is, is interesting. The claims the women make about God that they say of him that it doesn't, he doesn't say of himself. We, uh, we will have these two different types of things in Scripture if you look closely enough. Every now and then it'll say, God saw that she was unloved, and so he gave her a child. And it gave you his motivation, and it gave you what he did. But every now and then you'll have someone just say, God heard me and did this for this reason. It doesn't come as a claim directly from the Lord. It comes as a claim of what they imagined, the, why the Lord did it. And we have to be very careful within that, that we're not assigning motives to God that aren't his motives, particularly in what we do, particularly when something goes the way we wanted to, or we did something bad and nothing bad came about it. So the Lord must approve, right? When we read out of Matthew 5, 45, at the end of this verse, the beginning is talking about, hey, you need to love your enemies and you need to look at the world the way God looks at the world. And then it says this, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And everyone has looked out in the world and saw good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. To be able to look out there and say, just because something good happened in your life after you did something bad does not mean God approved of what you did. Judgment, ultimate judgment comes at the end when everything is, will be called into account. There are different areas and lessons in our life for us to learn, but at the end of our life, God is going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what you knew? And we will all stand in account before the Lord. We will all be responsible for what he's taught us. We can never judge life by the way the world responds to it. You need to judge your life by what the Bible says about it, about the word of God says about it, and be very careful not to assign motive that goes against what scripture says. There's a dangerous spot to be in in your life. We know God's motive for doing all these things. It's already been spoken in a previous chapter. Out of Genesis 28, it says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south, and in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God is building the house of Israel here. He's giving them a lot of children because you need a lot of children to create a nation of people. That's why God's doing this. Out of Isaiah 46, it says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. We get so caught up in what we have going on and what we're doing in the here and the now because it feels so important to us right now is that we don't have the same perspective God has in this big, vast picture of all of time and everything that needs to take place. What I, uh, the only way I can compare it to is looking at people that are significantly longer, longer, younger than you are. So I always compare to teenagers when they have that first relationship and it ends. And the world has ended. I will never love again. <laughs> and you look at them and go, it's going to be OK. 
just, it's going to be okay. The world didn't, look, look, the sun still rose. The world did not end. Because what you have is maturity and perspective. But now as adults, we think we have all of the maturity and all the perspective and things happen to us and we go, it will never be better than it is right now. And we think because of our maturity and perspective, it's somehow reasonable. But I imagine God in heaven going, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through it. We have to realize how we are compared to God. We are not the pinnacle. We don't have the same perspective God has. And he's looking at the whole big, vast picture of things. And it's a whole different thing we have to realize. We can't get so caught up in this moment. We've got to return back. Well, what really are the purposes of God? How am I lining up with you, Lord? Because it's a dangerous spot to be to just be so caught up looking right here. Because you won't be encouraged by knowing what's down there. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children from whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything if you do this for me. I will again pasture the flock and the sheep and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed from the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set them at a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So Jacob is, yes, he is a shyster. Jacob is ready to leave. He's ready to go. So we think. We're going to talk about it in a second. And he says, hey, Laban, Send me on my way. And there are expectations that are to be had here when family leaves. It's actually set in the law later. Out of Deuteronomy 15, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. It's almost exactly what we're seeing right here. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. There's an expectation that Laban is going to send him away with a gift. And so Laban is actually not one to set the price himself. He's a, he's a schemer. He's going to try to get the best of this deal. Jacob, what do you think is fair? Laban probably knowing very well what would be fair in this case. And Jacob, there's a little bit of haggling that's going on here. Well, you know how very blessed you are because of me, Laban. How little you had beforehand and how much they've grown now. And I imagine ba Laban with a little bit of the irritated voice, just name the wages, Jacob. What is it that you want? And now we have what they both think is a very clever ploy. Jacob saying, hey, just give me all the ones that have the discolorations on them. 
because for sheep and for goats, that's a much less likelihood that they will. So it would have been a much smaller amount of the flock. Give me all of those. Those will be my wages, and I'll stay, and I'll pasture them for longer. And at that point, we should have the thought, wait, I thought you just wanted to go. And we have to remember, why on earth would Jacob want to stay with his shyster uncle that just caused all of this dysfunction among the family for the last 14 years? Why is Jacob here in the first place? He was sent up here because of Esau's anger against him. He fled for his life, and he is waiting for his mother to call him back home, that if he's cooled down, it's okay to come back. She has never sent someone for him yet. He still needs to buy more time, so he might as well do it in the most profitable way for himself. So he thinks he's got a whole scheme that we're about to read about that's going to make sure that all the flock becomes speckled and spotted. Where Laban's thinking, wow, if I take all of these and I take them out of flock and I just leave all the solid colors, then he'll have almost nothing. Win-win for me. I get more free labor. My kids stay here. My grandkids stay here. Great. Let's do this thing. Let's see whose scheme wins out. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. When the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys. We have to do a little bit of a science lesson right now. Um, so we understand how genetics actually work and how they don't actually work. So. Uh, dominant versus recessive traits. We're going to put up a chart real quick. We're just going to talk about the sheep for a moment. Sheep's dominant trait is white wool, which is why we have a capital W for white wool. The recessive trait is black wool, lowercase b, recessive trait. Every creature, everything on earth that lives and breathes will have a trait pair. So it can either be dominant, 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 recessive, or recessive, recessive. When two animals breed or two people have a child, they will give one of those trait pairs to the child. So if you have two dominants, you can only give a dominant. If you have two recessives, you can only give a recessive. But if you've got one of each, then you've got an interesting thing that starts to happen here. Now, in order to have spotted, speckled, striped discolorations, they must be double recessive. So the fact that Laban took all of those out of the flock doesn't mean that all of those traits are gone. In order to have them in the first place, you'd had to have had a few that have dominant and recessive in there. So those are amongst all the sheep that still remain, which is why we're going to continue to have spotted, speckled, striped animals. Now, best case scenario for Jacob right now is two animals breed and they both have that dominant recessive. That's only a one out of four chance, though, that one of them is going to be spotted, speckled, striped. Once you have an animal that is spotted, speckled, striped, the odds of having more really increase. You go up to 50%, and if you, those two breed together, it's 100% chance. So there's really a strong way that this continues to happen. Now, this is just 
what we know of science, this is what we know of statistics, we could talk a lot about math, we can talk about what's likely to happen, but it's just that, it's a likelihood of happening. God wills what he wills. And I want to give you a very good example so you can see right away. I have very dark hair and dark green eyes. Those are both dominant, re- dominant traits. I was born with a full head of black hair. My mother is blonde hair and blue-eyed. That's a double recessive trait. So meaning I have dominant recessive, dominant recessive for both those traits. Now, if we looked at those pairs, my wife has blonde hair, blue eyes as well, meaning she has both recessive. We have a 50% chance of children having dark hair or dark eyes every single time. And this is a picture of my family. (laughs) Blonde and blue, blonde and blue, blonde and blue, blonde and blue. Every single child. It did not matter whether it was a 50%. God wills what he wills. There's nothing I could have done. I can't say, I'm Lord. Uh, Attention, sir. This is not what statistics told me should have happened. God wills what he wills. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 16.33. It says, we throw the dice. You have some control over your life. You have the ability to decide if you're going to throw those dice. But the Lord decides how they fall. God is intricately involved from the very beginning of every single life. He is in every single thing on this planet. He is deciding the way it's going to go. And of Isaiah 44, 24 through 25, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back makes their knowledge foolish. When we think we've got it figured out, we think we know a thing, and then somebody figures something else out, and it rocks our world. When we look at this story, we go, well, then what was Jacob doing? It's called maternal impressions. So there was a very long-held belief that when animals were breeding or when people were making a baby, that whatever impression was in the mind of the mother at that time could be imprinted on the baby. So that's why he's making them look at the sticks so they're striped. That's why he's making them look at the black goats to make sure they turn out black. Does that work? No. (laughs) It's that folklore. It's that, well, it seems to have happened sometimes, so there must be some connection here, but it's not. It's not how it actually works. It's wandering off into myths rather than focusing on the truth of what God says. And even despite all this, he said, they all turned out the way I wanted them to turn out. In the very next chapter, we'll see that. He's probably thinking he's got a pretty good scheme going on here. But the very next chapter, the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, I did this. I made sure they were all this way, Jacob. I saw what Laban tried to do to you. You have this because of me. Despite all your schemes, despite all your plans, how much you thought you had it figured out, I did this. In the third century before Christ, 300 years before Christ, the Greeks figured out that the world was round, that it was not flat, and they calculated the accurate circumference of the earth at that time. 300 BC, it rocked the world. Fast forward, 16th century after Christ, Copernicus figures out that the sun 
is the center of our solar system and not the Earth, rocked our world. People of this time refused to look through Galileo's telescope because they said man was not meant to look at the stars this way. Because they, they thought they knew truth, they thought they knew something was, and they didn't want to know otherwise. I can't believe in a world otherwise when truth is staring me in the face. In 1869, we discovered that every living creature, human, animal, plant, has DNA or RNA, which is a genetic code that tells everything about who you are. It's in, in every cell of your body. It changed while we looked at the world. In 1950, not until 1950, was there a published research paper saying, you know, smoking's not good for you, <laughs> and it causes lung cancer, causes issues in your lungs, inhaling smoke constantly. Before this, I read several different accounts of doctors prescribing menthol cigarettes to pregnant women to help them with anxiety. <laughs> and we have this reaction now on this side of information. But before, these were doctors thinking they had this all figured out. They had the pinnacle of knowledge to find out that they were causing very severe issues now amongst the babies. In 1997, the invention of Wi-Fi changed the entire world in how we communicate and how information is transmitted. We have to be very careful to not think that we are in a spot where we have this all figured out. We've got the pinnacle of things. I've got all this understanding because pride comes before a... Oh. You're so good. <laughs> God has a plan, an ultimate plan. Despite all the things that we've got going on, despite all our discoveries, we have these amazing things. Look what we've done! And God looks at, oh, look what the children figured out. That has always been there. Yeah. It's always been there. Everything we're discovering, it's just that it's a discovery. It's not an invention. Yeah. We're discovering what's already here, that God has instituted from the beginning. But he has an ultimate plan despite all of this. He has a purpose that he's heading to despite anything that we are doing. He's working in despite us. And it's the same from the beginning that it will be at the end. From the very beginning, God wanted to be with mankind on this place, enjoying this world with us, walking together day by day. That was what it was from the very beginning. And we made bad choices. Through our choices, we received death. We received consequences. And we had to walk that out for a while. God said, well, I hope you've learned by this point that this didn't go well. Now, I want the earth to be blessed. I want it to be what I wanted it to be. So I'm going to send this family to bless the whole earth, and redemption will come from this. So he builds up that family, makes them Israel, and says, okay, you're a nation now. We're on the plan. You're going to bless the whole earth. You should be able to look around this point and know that you should not do what's right in your own eyes. You should be able to easily look around and go, that's bad. This has not gone well for anybody. Don't do that. Okay, we're good. What do they do? That. <laughs> it's the whole book of Judges of how poorly it goes. We get to the end of the book of Judges, and we should be able to see, wow, that went really bad. But you know what they do? They go, you know what the problem actually is, Lord? We don't have a king. That's the real problem. <laughs> no, I'm your king. The problem is you haven't listened to me. They go, no, 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 no. No, that's not the problem. We need a king. He gives them a king. What does the king do? Leads them more astray than they've ever been to such an extent that they have to be punished and exiled to the far reaches of the earth. And God says, that 
isn't my plan, and that's not what will be. They will be redeemed. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I'm going to send my servant, and he will suffer on their behalf, and he will redeem them on my behalf. And Jesus Christ comes into this world, and he lives a sinless life, and he shows us goodness and righteousness. He shows us the kingdom of God, and he goes to that cross, and he dies for every single one of us, and he offers redemption and salvation and life. Are we to but choose him as Lord? Are we but to turn back to God and say, you indeed are king? Looking forward constantly to the reality that was always intended of him being our God and us being his people. And that is what the end will be. This is God's plan and this is God's purpose in our life. And this is what he's doing. And this is why he's making decisions he is making. He's looking at the entire scope of what is intended for humanity. And we get so often caught up in my here and my now. We have to be in alignment with the Lord. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I'm going to, just as the beginning, you need to speak to God. You need to pray to the Lord constantly. The first Timothy 2, it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, is one that we're not all up in each other's business all the time. (laughs) That we are loving each other. We're enjoying each other. We're bringing each other along. We're lifting each other up. Quiet and dignified. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that begins with speaking to God. Reaching out to God day after day. Lord, what do we do? Lord, save them. Lord, help them. Lord, walk me through this so that I can be a blessing to them. Proverbs 11 When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. We have to be so careful not to get caught up in all of who we are because when things go well, it's very easy to go, I'm doing pretty good. But with pride comes disgrace. It's humility and it's integrity that carries us into righteousness. It's following after God. When we look at the example of Jacob from this passage, we, we should notice that we don't see Jacob complaining anymore. We don't really see Jacob striving against things anymore. We really see Jacob just getting to work. He's not perfect yet. He's on a journey. He's headed towards being more like God than he was the day before. What we're witnessing here is the reality that growth takes time. We're watching a 20-year journey with Jacob, where he becomes Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grabber, the one who robbed his brother and his father. And he, at the end of this journey, will be Israel, one who strives with man and God and prevails. That's an amazing, incredible transformation of a human being. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that should say, we're all Jacobs, and you can be in Israel. And that's a journey you have to be on with the Lord. And so I'm going to end this with this idea. How will you walk with God? 
knowing it will be a journey, knowing it will take time, and that growth will sometimes be slow. It's not going to be quick, like this world says everything should be right now. Will you walk with the Lord? Amen?